Let's pray. Father, we anticipate great things from you, not because we demand anything from you, but because you make promises, and we know you're a God who keeps his promises. And your promise from the, from the mouth of Isaiah, from your mouth through Isaiah, is this. Your word will not return void. It will accomplish that for which you send it. And so we trust your word because we trust you. We trust your word because we trust your spirit. So as I preach your word, I pray that the song we just sang would be true, that it is not I, but through Christ in me, that I and we could say with Paul, this life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Exalt Jesus this morning, Father, through your word, by the power of your spirit, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> After last week's sermon on the previous three verses in Isaiah 52, 12 through 15, I hope that you see clearly now the significance of the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the necessity and glory of his sacrifice and his suffering for us. So I talked about that last week, right? For us is a statement I want to take out of the Bible. It's not about you. It's about God and his glory. And God's like, you don't get to take it out of the Bible. I put it in the Bible. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. We are part of the equation that equals God's greatest glory. And that requires him loving us, requires his grace, and all of that is revealed most prominently in human history and in the word through the death of Jesus. And so I hope that you have begun, at least last week, begin, begun to somewhat gather up just a taste for the eternal sweetness of God's love for you. And though all of that is wonderful and gloriously beautiful, what we see now in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, is not so beautiful. In fact, it's rather foul and ugly and almost unbearable if we really talk about how gruesome and disgusting and painful the suffering of this servant is. I remember when I was in Montana, I know I've told you this maybe a couple years ago, when I was in Montana preaching, we have four pastors on staff and Pastor Jerry is a senior pastor, and he's like, each of us are going to do like a seven-minute little sermonette throughout Easter service. And so we have Easter service, and, and, uh, or maybe it was Good Friday service, I don't remember, something, one of those. And, and I go up and I do my seven minutes, and I take the seven minutes to focus strictly on my responsibility was to talk about the cross. So we kind of had this sermon, little, little seven-minute sermon pieces worked out where I got to talk about the cross, and then the next pastor got to talk about the resurrection, and the next pastor got to talk about life, life in Christ or whatever. So my focus was the death of Christ. So I narrow it in 
on the physical anguish of the Son of God on the cross and talked about the detailed descriptions and the brutality of what he suffered in a period of just a couple of days with the crown of thorns and the bleeding and the pain and the whips that they whipped him with and the things that were on those whips and how it shredded his body and the amount of blood he was losing and what it's like to have to be nailed to a cross, what the nails feel like, how it hits the vagus nerve, which sends an incredible amount of pain through your body and how you have to pull yourself up to breathe and then they break their legs so that they can't pull themselves up or push up to breathe, but Jesus', Jesus bones are never broken. And so I'm describing, and then they stab him in the side to verify if he's dead. And so I'm describing all these details, and there were two people in church while I was preaching that passed out. <laughs> and I heard that someone was like, there was like commotion while I'm preaching. I'm like, uh-oh, what's going on over there? And then I found out later these two people had passed out. And I said, I talked to them, I was like, you guys okay? Why'd you pass out? They're like, it was just too gruesome. And at the time, I remember thinking like, oh, I shouldn't have said that much. And I'm like, that should be the most appropriate response to, to God being murdered on a cross. It is gruesome. It is terrifyingly disgusting. It is horrifying to watch and to think about and we can only imagine it and here's the real kicker it's your fault and mine it's our fault we put him there we are the problem there is no solution in Christ if we are not the problem. There's no gospel if we're not the problem. There's no suffering servant who conquers the grave if there is not sin that needs to be conquered. And there is no sin to be conquered if there are not sinners whose sin needs to be punished. This text in Isaiah 53 does not cast us in the light of beauty that we are now. That we are now in Christ. Rather, it casts us as the enemies who cause the Son to bear the weight of our sins. And though that sounds dreary and worrisome and burdensome, it is glorious, is what it is, because this story and this message and this song that Isaiah writes about the suffering servant does not end in verse 3, but what it does is it foreshadows the wonderful mercies of God, the endless love of God, and the power and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we are taken from the cause of his suffering to the object of his greatest affection. So though today we do verses 1 through 3, remember, this is not the end of the song. It's the second stanza of five stanzas in this last song of Isaiah's songs of the suffering servant. And so, just like we sing in our songs today that have three or four verses and we listen to them and it starts with, God is great, we are sinners, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and then Jesus rose in victory. And how many songs are written with that kind of format? And that's how Isaiah writes this song. So though today becomes a kind of a burden of our sin, this is not the end of the song, so don't become discouraged. 
if recognizing that we are the cause of his suffering so that we can become the object of his greatest affection, if that does not cause us to praise him, then literally nothing will. So, though we are the enemies today, let us just bask in that. I know it sounds crazy and weird, but do it. Don't resist it, because if we do, then what is the point of the suffering servant? So today, recognize your shame. Like, just for a moment. You know, I tell Christians all the time, if you're feeling shame, that's Satan, not God. God convicts. The Holy Spirit convicts. Satan wants shame. Shame keeps your sin hidden. He loves that tactic. But there are times in Scripture where God uses shame, like, uh, like 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He uses shame as an instrument for repentance, for joy in Christ. So, for a moment, let's just dwell and not not dwell too long but just recognize our shame don't wear it don't put it on we were just in colossians and colossians 3 paul's like don't put on that garbage don't put on who you used to be put on who you are in christ but that includes knowledge of who we were so don't wear it but just see it just see your sin just know who you really are and see yourself in your flesh not so that you stay there Not so that you go home disgruntled and you feel icky and gross and sinful, but so that you don't. So that in sitting in the putrid mire of the wickedness of your flesh, you can see the amazing love and eternal grace of God to rescue you from that wickedness. So that you can see Christ as beautiful. That's always the aim. That's always the goal. So that you can see God as glorious, so that for a moment we are nothing, so that he can be everything. Let your sinfulness wash over you just for a moment today in Isaiah 53. Not to dwell on it, not to dwell there, but so that you can see the way out, so that you can see Christ and him crucified, and when you do, you will realize that there is no putrid wickedness anymore. There is only appreciation and praise and joy and glory to the one and only suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Isaiah asked some questions. Who has heard? Who has believed? Here's the answer. No one. No one has heard. Not one single person in all of human history can believe or can even have the ears to hear or fathom this gospel. It is not possible. It is literally impossible to know it, to see it, to contemplate it, to understand it, to hear it, and to believe it. Impossible. No one gets it. No one who's ever been born or lived can possibly get it on their own. Paul confirms this in Romans 3, and this is the reason why we can't. Romans 3, 10 through 18. None is righteous, no Not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. So we've got none, no, 
Not one, no one, no one. If there's any confusion about how this includes every human who's ever lived, I hope that we can just put that aside with the clarity that Paul is providing to us in Romans 3, that these are all, Romans 3, 10 through 18 is a bunch of verses that Paul took from the Old Testament and wrapped into one idea to convey who we are without Christ. No one, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Well, what about, no, like no one, not even one. Well, David, not even one. Moses, not even one. Moses didn't even get to go to the promised land because he sinned. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is all of us without Christ. And if you think that, no, that's not me, and a whole lot of non-believers who aren't quick to shed blood and create paths of ruin and misery and deceptive and bitter and curses, and I know a lot of non-believers, and that wouldn't be me if I wasn't. You're going to have to convince me that this scripture isn't about every one of us without Christ before I believe that that's not who you would be. And even if you didn't act it out particularly in our society, that's still the condition of your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. That is who we are without Christ. That is what we are conceived and born into, pure, unadulterated wickedness and hatred, hatred, according to James, James 4, hatred for God that literally spews out of every pore from our body because it is not just what we act like, it is who we are. So who has believed the gospel? No one. Who has heard? No one. At least not until the Lord reveals it to them. And what a miraculously sovereign grace that God has bestowed on us. Human wisdom cannot possibly fathom the goodness of God to send to us a gift like Jesus Christ. And so those to whom he has not been revealed do not hear it nor understand it, nor perceive it, nor believe it, but only those to whom it has been revealed. We cannot believe it if he does not give us belief. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 calls faith a gift. Jesus said it himself in many places, but particularly in John 6, 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We must be drawn. We must be awakened from the dimness of our invading sinful flesh that consumes who we are. We must have someone on the outside, not internal faith, external faith provided for us that pulls back the veil of wickedness to reveal to us the beauty of God's saving grace in Christ. Because if he doesn't do that for us, then we are what we always were before. 
despisers of Christ and non-esteemers of Christ, as Isaiah says at the end of verse 3. But before we get there, let's look at why we would be that way. Aside from our inherent sinful flesh, the reason we do not esteem him, but instead despise Christ, is because he's actually not that much to look at. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This does not mean that Jesus was ugly. It means that Jesus looked like, just like every other first century Jew. You couldn't pick him out of a crowd. He wasn't extraordinary to look at. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't, you guys remember um, Aladdin? When he uh, gets his wish to become a prince and then he bursts into the kingdom riding like an elephant and there's all these singers and it's this big hoopla and they come and sing it. Prince Ali, fabulous he. You guys know that song? Yeah. One of my favorites. <laughs> Um, that is kind of the fanfare that the Jews expected from the coming Messiah. And it was the opposite. They thought this king was going to come and rule and take over. They thought he was going to free Israel from Roman power and establish a kingdom on earth right there and then. I mean, Jesus in his ministry was asked many times, when are we going to do this? And then he resurrects and ascends, or he resurrects and talks to his disciples, and they're like, so when's this going to happen? He's like, you still don't get it? All right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to send you my spirit so that you can understand what's happening. So, like, there's still, even after his resurrection, confusion about what the Messiah will do on earth. So when Jesus shows up as Average, average in appearance, average in stature, no Prince Ali type of entrance into the world. No one beholds the majesty that is there. There's no glory, there's no beauty. He's just a first century dude looking like a first century dude. That's all there is to Jesus on the outside. It's what he looks like. Isaiah says he came out of dry ground. That means he has no impressive background, no, no roots that are anything to boast about. He's from the most unimpressive town, born in the most unimpressive place. He's born in a stable and a manger with an unimpressive family and unimpressive friends and unimpressive looks. There is nothing about his physical appearance that's noteworthy. There's nothing about his hometown that's noteworthy. There's nothing about his family that's noteworthy other than he could claim that he's from the line of David, but like who else couldn't? There are a lot of people who could make that claim. And there's nothing about his birth that is noteworthy. Isaiah says he has no beauty that we should desire him. He was simply ordinary to look at and therefore easy to ignore. And this is why the doctrine of total depravity is vital to the gospel. If you're wondering what total depravity is, 
What I just read for you in Romans chapter 3 is a great description of total depravity. Every human who's ever lived, every human who's ever been conceived, I should say, is conceived into and born into 100% sin. There is zero good in us. Zero percent. Not even a half of an ounce or a point of a percent. There's zero percent good in us without Christ. We are all, everyone, totally, and I mean that word totally as in total, totality, 100% depraved of any good. That's who we are at conception and birth. David confirms it in Psalm 51 as well. And this truth is vital to the gospel. All humans from conception are, as Paul describes, like I just read in Romans 3, but again, he describes what we're like and what, that, what we're like, that, that, that inherent sinful nature that is totally depraved. He talks about what it looks like, what it becomes in the, in the human life in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where he says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is us, totally depraved of any good. And it is because of that total depravity in which we are naturally dwelling that makes the arrival of the king of the universe so unappealing and unattractive. And that is why he was ordinary. The reason we don't believe in him is not because of his average appearance and his average upbringing and his average background. We don't believe in him because God has not revealed him as Messiah. We believe in him and he has revealed him to us. But the reason people don't believe in him is because God has not revealed him to them as Messiah. God has not lifted the veil that's described in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, his lack of appeal and appearance serves two purposes. His average appearance serves the unbeliever's disbelief. And therefore... His average appearance serves as evidence of God's grace to those who do believe. So that when we believe, it cannot be said that it is due to his royalty on earth or his appearance or his majesty as a person. Oh, he's like King Solomon with all his splendor and riches and glory on earth. He didn't have that on earth. He was offered it by Satan on earth, but he turned it down. Because there's a greater glory for him than on this earth. And it requires faith to have it. And it requires faith to believe it. And faith is God's gift. But instead, what his average appearance does is it reveals God's grace to us. And in God's grace, we see an ordinary man who is actually an extraordinary God and Savior. And to those who do not believe, he is worth overlooking because he is not much to look at. And for the first century Jew, that's exactly what they did. They ignored him because he was easy to ignore until he wasn't. So then how 
is he treated when he becomes difficult to ignore? And the reason he's difficult to ignore is because he starts making some claims that are pretty outrageous. Claims like, I'm going to save the world from sin. I'm God. I come from the Father. There's only one way to the Father and through me. Oh no, we worship the Father. Before Abraham was, you're not before Abraham, and Jesus like, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. Because I was and am and will be always the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am before Abraham. And you don't worship my father, you worship Satan. So, he starts making some pretty insane claims, and what does that earn this suffering servant in his life? Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Isn't he from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this just an ordinary guy? How can he make such extraordinary claims about himself? He makes himself to be one with God. Crucify him! Crucify him! And they cry that at the top of their lungs. So much so that they're like, free the murderer and crucify the guy who says he's God. He makes himself the king of the Jews, so let's kill him and mock him. And therefore, his ordinary life took an extraordinarily painful turn. He became, verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We look at that verse today in Christ with the Holy Spirit in us, loving Jesus, and we go, man, those people are bad. That is you and me. That is all of us. We'd all be there doing the same thing if it is not for God's grace. He is a pitiful picture of ordinary, a man who claimed to be something that he was not. That's what they believed. Just a guy who claimed to be something he's not. He's so ordinary, but claims to be extraordinary, and he's not. And that is what billions of people believe today, that he's not worth looking upon, that there is no beauty in that ordinary Israeli face, or that there's no beauty in that ordinary Israeli face that is dripping with blood from the crown of thorns that he wore as he was murdered on the cross as a way to mock him for being king of the Jews, for being the very thing that he had claimed to be. But it's not just the Jews to whom he is king. We talked about this last week. His blood will sprinkle the nations and the world will know him as God of the universe. All people will see his glory. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He was despised and rejected on earth so that he would become the sacrifice that we needed to be saved. This was mandatory that he be seen as ordinary. That he be seen as nothing special, that he be ignored. But when the reality of who he is burst onto the first century scene, there was just no way to hide him any longer. I mean, he would do things and people would be, he would literally tell people, don't go tell anyone what I just did for you. And what would they do? They'd go tell everyone what he did for them. I mean, if you met Jesus in the first century and you couldn't walk and he healed you, how do you keep your mouth shut about that? How, how could you? Because the man who was healed by the pool in Bethesda didn't run around telling everybody. The Jews are like, whoa, what are you doing walking? And he's like, some dude healed me. Who? I don't know. 
Until Jesus sees him in the temple and says, how you feeling, buddy? <laughs> how them legs working out for you? And he's like, oh, you're the guy who healed me. Okay, cool. And then the Jews ask him again, or he goes to the Jews and said, it was Jesus. There's a reason Jesus didn't want people to know. Because he knew what was coming. And yet God ordains that these people spread the gospel. You can't hide this glory much longer. His glory could not go unnoticed. His crucifixion was drawing near. The more people knew about him, the closer he got to death and he saw it coming. And the truth about who he was and who he is and what he could do or what he will do could no longer be contained. And so men hated him and despised him and esteemed him not. And those same men killed him. They murdered the Son of God. They put God on trial. He spoke not a word. He just took the cross in silence, despising the shame so that we could have the joy that he has and that we could have it in him forever. That is love. Love knows nothing more than this but to give up your life for your friend. That's the, that's the best expression of love. Sacrifice is the best expression of love. Your spouse ever ask you to just grab something for them while you're up? Can you grab me a glass of water while you're up? And you're like, sure. And they're like, thank you. You know, it's a lot harder when you're up and then you're like, sit down and you recline the couch. You're like, oh. and they go, could you go get me a glass of water? <laughs> you're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's a little bit more sacrifice and it has a lot more meaning. It's a better expression of love. Now that's a glimpse into the reality of our lives, but it reveals a much bigger truth. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. And the greatest sacrifice of all is that the God of the universe who created all things, he himself became human flesh, that which he created and will forever and eternally be in human flesh so that he could rescue and redeem you to spend eternity in the glory that he shares with his Father forever. That is a sacrifice and it is the greatest sacrifice that not only does God himself take on flesh, but that God himself then submits himself to the greatest form of suffering in that flesh. Not just a physical death on the cross that is unbearable to endure, but that in the physical suffering on the cross, he is also carrying upon himself and in himself the sins of all God's people. The weight of the world on his shoulder and the physical pain and suffering of the cross is the greatest sacrifice because no one, no one in all of human history could ever make a claim that he makes, which is, I don't deserve that. He did not deserve it. We deserve it. And he did it for us. There's no greater love because there's no greater sacrifice. And for any man who thinks that love is for girls and love is for weak men, hasn't met the man Jesus Christ. Soldiers give their lives in battle and we call them manly. And they are because of what they do. And we praise them for what they do. And we thank them for their service. And we thank them for their sacrifice, as we should. But no man has ever bore the weight of the entire world on his shoulders and took that death and then blew open the grave as if it were subject to his power and glory. No person, no soldier, no human, no leader, no one can ever claim that except for Christ. 
Only Christ can make that claim. Only Christ can win that battle. Only Christ is that man. And that man did it out of love. So, as I said at the beginning, we have to take a moment at least to just recognize that the Jews who murdered this suffering servant and caused his suffering are no worse than us. We are not special. We are like them. We are murderers too. I mean, look at Peter. We tout Peter as this, I mean, he, write, he wrote scripture for us. He's one of the greatest church leaders ever. And Jesus is being persecuted. And they're like, do you know him? He's like, nope. Three times, nope, nope, nope. Like, are you kidding me? This is Peter? How many of you would dare to say out loud, I'm probably more holy than Peter? Like, <laughs> it's arrogant to say you're more holy than anybody, right? But the reality is, none of us are more holy than Peter, and none of us are less holy than Peter, because all of us are Peter saying, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. That's who we are, until God's grace in Christ is poured out on us, and with Peter, we are completely and totally redeemed. We go from totally depraved to totally redeemed. But we are murderers at heart. We are like them. And we must, we absolutely must realize that and believe that Jesus hung on that cross because of me. Jesus hung on that cross because of me. It's my fault. Me. Not you. Not you. I'm not preaching to you. I'm not saying you are the problem or we are the problem. I am telling everybody I'm the problem. And you should have the same attitude. I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst. I am the most God-hating, disobedient, self-righteous, arrogant, wicked man in all of human history. I have to believe that. I have to believe that I am as bad as it gets. And if you ever, for a moment, think, yeah, I get it, you know, you're a sinner too, but you're not as bad as the people who do. And then you fill in the blank. The people who do this deserve, I mean, these are the worst of worst. These are the all-time worst people. The people who do these things, things that I don't even want to say at the pulpit because they're probably inappropriate to say while there are children present. Those are the worst. You're not as bad as them. Yes, I am. If I am totally depraved, then there is zero good in me, which means that terrible thing is truly who I am 100%. Because there'd have to be an ounce of good in me to not be that disgusting. And there is no good in me without Christ. So I am that disgusting, and I am the worst. And you should be able to say that about yourself. I'm not going to say it to you, because I don't want you to feel like I'm beating you up. But we should all think that about ourselves. And that's why Paul says that about himself. Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And Paul also calls himself the chief of sinners. He doesn't call himself the chief of sinners so that he can say, I'm Paul, I'm the worst, I'm the most humble because I recognize my sin more than you do. Paul is setting an example. He tells us in 
Ephesians to imitate God and to imitate him. Our imitation of him is to recognize that we too should all be able to say, I am the worst sinner. And that's why he says in Romans 7.18 that there's nothing, nothing good dwells in me that is nothing good dwells in my flesh. And what does our flesh produce? Romans 7.5 For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Every single one of us must believe that. We have to. Because if we don't, then there might be just an ounce of something in us that makes us think that we were the special one who happened to see through that ordinary man to see the extraordinary in him. And if that were true, then we'd have something to boast about, which is why Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 exist to tell you it is by grace, it is by faith that you are saved. This is a gift of God so that no one can boast. You did nothing to achieve this. You can say, well, I believe because God gifted you faith by grace. There's nothing we can do to achieve this salvation. There's no, we're totally depraved. Dead people can't believe. They're dead. Spiritual death is not a partial death. You can't, you're not, you're not like, you know, drowning in the pool. I've used this example for 15 years. We talk about salvation like Jesus throws you a life raft while you're drowning. No, you're dead. At the bottom of the pool or the bottom of the lake, and not just dead, but old dead. You've been there for years. And you rotted flesh, just bones, death. That's what we are. It's, it's gross, I know, and it's like, why are we describing it? Because that's how gross your sin is, and that's not even as gross as our sin. Our sin nature is worse, way grosser. And that's the point, that you are dead. And what does he do? He doesn't throw you a life raft and say, choose me. He breathes life into you. Jesus said it in John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And why is the flesh no help at all? Because Paul just told us that the fruit of the flesh is death. So we have to know this. And I know this, I, I do believe that overall, I'd say if you were to like summarize this sermon, you could be like, it's very negative about our sin and we're in Christ, so we should be focusing on who we are in Christ. I totally agree. But we're in the second stanza of a song and this is what Isaiah wrote and this is the song and the song and the second stanza is pretty depressing. And it's depressing because of you and me. We're the reason it's depressing. But when you see the whole song come together, it's not depressing. It's glorious and beautiful and wonderful. And so I ask you to hang in through the second stanza. Because there is glory to come throughout this song as God unveils the life of this suffering servant and the purpose of the suffering servant and the victory of the suffering servant. And so, we're going to spend the rest of our existence gazing into the glory of Jesus Christ. And if there's any amount of 
anything in you that thinks about, eh, that doesn't really sound that fun. That is sin. Any fraction of you that doesn't fully explode in joy and praise to God that you get to dwell in and around and gaze into the fullness of God's glory in Jesus Christ for eternity. Anything that doesn't, any little tiny sliver that doesn't want that is your flesh. Of course your flesh doesn't want that. If I told you get to go to heaven and just spend eternity just gazing into Jesus' glory, I'm like, eh. But I said, how about instead you get to go home, you get to relax after church, you get someone's going to make you pizza, they're going to bring you a beer, you get to watch football all afternoon. Now that sounds nice. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, I mean, I'll be honest, that sounds nice to me. I like the idea of that, just chill, relax, do something I enjoy. Maybe you've got a craft you like to do or or some, you know, thing, you, whatever hobby you have, whatever it is, sounds enjoyable. I could do that for eternity. The reason we can't compare God's glory in Christ to the things that we enjoy in life is because we have this flesh still, and it totally taints and destroys and perverts and twists our perception of who Christ is and the glory of God in Christ. So therefore, we don't look forward to that in the way that we should. I do it too. You probably do it too. We all do it. We don't look forward to his glory the way that we should. It's because we're still in the flesh, which is why the entire purpose of your Christian life is to grow in that joy. Psalm 1611 says that the whole purpose of our eternity is to just be happy in him. To just dwell in his presence where there is pleasure forevermore. To just be in his right hand and just have the joy of all joys. That's why we exist and we know that's the eternal promise, and I don't want to go day by day thinking to myself, I, you know, kind of don't really, like, enter. maybe, you know, I'll just live my life now, and I know that when I get to heaven, I will enjoy it. God will change my mind. I, I believe that that's true. I believe that he will, I know he will, remove the flesh for once and for all, and we'll spend eternity without sin interfering with our perception of his glory and without sin interfering with the joy and pleasure of his presence and we will love it. But here's the thing, we are commanded today to love it. Joy is a command to pursue it, to be anxious for joy, to wake up for joy in Christ. Not joy in football, not joy in beer, not joy in your hobbies, not joy in your family, not joy in your job, not joy in money, not joy in security, not joy in anything but Christ. And Matthew 6, Jesus says, you put God first, you put righteousness first, and the rest of these things will fall right into order. And then your joy for your family, and your joy for your job, and your joy for your security, and your joy for your finances will all be aligned biblically as you pursue Christ most. We will spend the rest of eternity doing that which the rest of the world refused to do, and that is to see him and look at him, to esteem him and to desire him. They didn't, they can't, they won't without God's grace. Same with us. 
They cannot because they have no faith. And they have not because God has not revealed him to them. But to us, he has. And we cannot fully grasp, really, the audacity of God, which God can't have audacity because he determines all reality. But from our perspective, how audacious for God to reveal Christ to us. And we can't have that unless we first understand that we are no better than any other person who looks at this first century Jewish suffering servant like he's nothing special. You have to believe that in order to receive the gift. That's part of his grace. Part of God's grace is revealing to you how totally depraved you are. Because it is from total depravity that we find need, genuine, heartfelt, deep anguish, and then a need for Christ. We are, without Christ, God-hating, sin-loving, evil. That's who we are. That's what our flesh is pursuing, and it, our flesh rears its ugly head in this Christian life, too. And you see that happen in believers' lives, in your own life, in churches. It's part of the walk, but it's hard to be God-hating, sin-loving evil when you are pursuing Jesus. But that's who we are in the flesh. We have to know that. We have to accept this so that we can accept the grace that God has shown us in revealing to us the truth that his son is actually not ordinary but quite beautiful and that he showed us his beauty in the most disgusting and ugly way possible by being crucified and bloody and beaten and ripped to shreds and stabbed in the side so that in his death he would show the power of glory when he burst from the grave in glory. The only reason you believe that and the only reason you love that is because God has revealed him to you. And for that... We ought to spend the rest of our lives looking at our sin, not to see sin, not to focus on sin, but to see sin as a lens through which we peer to see on the other side of that flesh the beauty of Christ, the promise of hope, the death and resurrection of that suffering servant that paid for the sin, and that sin keeps us desperate for Christ while we're in this flesh. I don't want you to focus on your sin, but... Scripture commands us, examine yourselves. That doesn't mean examine and then dwell on it and then beat yourself up for being such a disgusting, stupid, ugly, dumb, wicked person. That's not the message. The message is examine yourself to find that which is in you that is still not holy. Pluck it out and destroy it. And the only reason you're capable of doing that is because Christ already conquered it. And yet we still dwell in it. And we still live with it. And the gospel message is not just that you're eternally redeemed from your sins. The gospel message is now Christ lives in me. The power of God and the Spirit is in me to overthrow the sins in my life that Christ has already killed. Amen. That is how we should live our life. Not to focus on sin 
but to see sin as a means to keep us dependent on God. To examine the sin and realize, ah, without Christ, that's who I am. All right, Christ, conquer it. And he does. And you overthrow that sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and you start walking in a fresh newness of life that has been achieved and bought and purchased for you in Christ. And you begin to look more and more like Jesus. Don't you want to look more like Jesus? I had a pastor this morning come to the church before I walked in these doors, a friend of mine. I pull in and he's just sitting there waiting for me to get out of my car. And he just walks up to me, hugs me, and prays for me. I'm like, what? You're such a better pastor than me. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I aspire to be like you. He's like, oh, I aspire to be like you. I'm like, ah, oh, shucks. So, <laughs> like, we just had, he's just this, like, he just showed me Christ. And I'm like, oh, there's God again showing me where I fail uh, being a pastor or fail in my righteous thinking or fail in my Christ-like attitude or fail in my biblical thinking. It just, it just shows me moment. After moment. So now I look at that moment, I go, that, that was God pulling up the, the, the x-ray and looking at me internally and spiritually and going, do you see that, Mark? That's who you are without me. And I just showed you through that other guy. We're gonna work on that now. Okay, Lord, let's do it. Because I want to be more like Christ. You know why? Not just for your sake, because it feels good. It just feels so good. And that's who I want to be, and that's who Scripture commands me to be, and that's what I'm going to pursue. And in order to pursue it, I need the x-ray machine that examines who I am without him. So I don't want you to dwell on your sin. I want you to see your sin. I want you to recognize. I want you to examine your life. I want you to search for it. Not so that... You feel crummy about yourself, but so that when, with every ounce of sin that you discover in your life, you can proclaim with joy, paid. Paid in full with the blood of Christ. Paid for by the suffering servant. He has paid for my sin. Hallelujah. He is glorious and beautiful and wonderful. And I am like him and I am in him and I am something new because of him. And I am no longer that thing that I have to keep looking at. But I am something new in Christ. Praise God for this sin that reveals who I am without him so that I could glory in him. He is beautiful. He is not an ordinary man. He is an extraordinary Savior. Let's pray. We do not deserve you, God. We love you, Jesus. You are too good for us, and yet by your grace and love, you're like, don't say that to me. I determine what's good for me and what's good for you. So let us just dwell then in utter satisfaction that you have even chosen us that you have picked us to redeem we don't deserve it we just praise you for it thank you that through your son jesus his substitutionary death on that cross for us is the means by which we are called yours let us not forget his suffering let it be an encouragement to us as we endure our own and let the joy that he purchased on that cross be something we pursue with great fervency. 
We love you, Lord. We thank you for your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.